Thank you, John and Derek. All right, the youth can be dismissed for Sunday school. The rest of us go ahead and grab a Bible and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. As uh, John mentioned, we're, we're deep into a study on biblical love, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one uh, somewhere within reach. Definitely look around and grab one so you can follow along as we continue in our time of worship and really ascend in our time of worship through the study of God's Word. 1 Corinthians is uh, in the New Testament, kind of towards the end of your Bible, after the book of Romans. John Acts Romans, excuse me, John Acts Romans, 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, We have been in a verse-by-verse study through the book of Romans. Uh, We've made it through chapter 5, but we're just pulling over in park, taking a quick break, and doing a a mini-series called Christian Foundations, looking at some foundational stuff uh, as we launch into a new year, uh, we studied humility, we studied what the Bible is, and now we're taking a slower look at love. First Corinthians 13, and as you're turning there, welcome to all y'all, good to see you, especially those of you who are newer, thank you for joining with us for worship. It's our joy, our privilege to, to have you gathering with us. This time uh, of studies, we take about an hour to study the Word of God together. It's not, uh, really, we're not just here to jump through a fiery religious hoop. And pat ourselves on the back for, you know, going through some religious rite, but there's actually power in the Word of God. Uh, This book being like no other book, it's the very words of God, all 66 books, and profitable to to transform us in a way that uh, no other book could and can. So we take a a slow look, uh, and we do hear what's called expository study or expository preaching, was just to say we go verse by verse through books and expose it or bring it out and let the Word of God uh, and the power of the Word of God uh, do its work. First Corinthians 13, the title, of course, the message is Love. Now, I want, to, I want you to imagine one day you're walking down the street and you see an odd sight. You see uh, there's a guy uh, approaching you on the sidewalk and, and you notice something super strange. He's, he's punching himself in the face and then he's sitting there, he's kicking himself in his own ankle kicking himself in the other ankle, slapping himself across the head, and starts kneeing himself, kneeing his own forehead, hitting himself in the cheek, and you're kind of like, I'm going to head to the other side of the street and risk the the jaywalking ticket here. And then you observe the guy kind of fall down, and again, he's just rolling on the ground and beating himself up, wailing on himself. Of course, that's an odd, disturbing sight. This is what was happening proverbially speaking, in the Corinthian church, the church to whom this letter in this particular passage was written. No, they weren't physically fighting themselves, but it's 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 an illustration. In 1 Corinthians 12, it says that local churches who worship the Jesus of the Bible, they're like the body of Christ. And each, each individual in the church plays a critical part. And, and in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says like, like one guy kind of operates like is the hand, one is the eye, one is the ear, and it's one body, and we're to work together. You know, if, if one part breaks down, like if the lung decides not to work, that's damaging to the whole body. But what was happening in this church is there was, there was infighting, there was a lot of pride and boasting and kind of chucking chairs across the church at each other divisions, going after each other, strife. And and so it looks like it's a disturbing sight where God's people are to love one another, having received the love of Christ. And so by way of the analogy that we're the body of Christ, it looks like someone kicking and punching themselves on the sidewalk is disturbing. It's ridiculous. It says ridiculous People who have received the love of Christ chucking chairs at each other and pride disputes. It's as ridiculous as a guy beating himself on the sidewalk. Now imagine that you, 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 you have a child and say they have uh, some medical emergency. They've, 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 they've gotten something like appendicitis. And so you rush them to the ER and you go into the hospital and you look around and you see the nurses there like, throwing 
IV needles at each other. There's mud and dirt all over, dirty needles, IV bags with mud and grime in them. And you're looking at this, you're like, I'm going to another hospital. That's not a hospital where I can get care and my child can get healing. This place is ridiculous. Every local church, though far from perfect, is to be somewhat of a spiritual hospital where through the proper teaching and the ministry of the word of God, people can come and get strength and and spiritual healing, spiritual transformation for life, for sorrow, for discouragement, for eternity, for marriage, whatever it might be. And again, that, the, the church, when we can't learn to love each other and we're, proverbially speaking, chucking chairs at each other in disputes, we look like that filthy hospital. And so this is what was happening in the church in the first century. Paul writes about 50s AD, first century, to this church. They were like a, a filthy hospital or like a guy beating himself up on the sidewalk. And so that's why, in part, Paul writes this passage that we're studying this morning where he's saying, in effect, guys, knock it off. You're to be different than the world, not because you're so great, but because you have received the forgiveness and the transforming power of Jesus Christ, not by works, not because you're something great in yourselves, but because of Jesus Christ. And so he writes this passage to say, let's, let's kind of, let, let, like Vince Lombardi used to say at the beginning of, you know, training with the Packers, he'd say, guys, this is a football, this is, this is the yard line, this is, you know, you have four downs to go 10 yards to revisit the basics, and that was very helpful. And so this is kind of what Paul's doing in verses 1 through 7 of 1 Corinthians to say, we need to get back to these essential things that are actually very difficult, namely love. Jesus said, by this, he said it in the night before he was crucified in John 13, 34 and 35, by this, everyone will know, speaking to believers, that you are my disciples if you love one another. So the way that God's people love each other speaks a message, hey, this is actually a spiritual hospital, not perfect, but you can actually get the power of Christ here. And it's not like a guy beating himself up. It's actually a place where there is love. In his book on the topic, Alexander Strzok says this, quote, every local church is to be a display window for Christ's supernatural love. Puritan Nathaniel Vincent wrote this, quote, no wonder that Satan who labors to destroy churches endeavors to kill love. Love is the fulfillment of God's whole law and is something we're called to, the chief command. Everybody who would dare name the name of Christ we're responsible for this kind of biblical love. So would that follow along as I read 1 Corinthians 13? I'll start in verse 1. 1 Corinthians 13.1. This is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative word of God. 1 Corinthians 13.1. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. And then here's the definition. So what is love? Verse four, love is patient. Love is kind, is not jealous, does not brag, is not puffed up. Love does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. That's uh, an economy of words there, isn't it? Uh, This passage, which is appropriately read at things like weddings and different occasions, that's great for those hallmark moments, but it's far more than that. This is a powerful passage. It is transforming by the grace of God. We began studying it last week. Again, this church, the Corinthian church, full of battles. And Paul is saying, I want you to humble yourself 
and first love. But what he would also have them and us and everyone afterwards who reads it understand is this. You can't get the power to love this way by your own strength. This is like a, a different level, a supernatural type of love. You have to be saved. You have to receive the saving power of Jesus Christ. First John 4.19 said it this way, we love because he first loved us. So it's saying that love of Christ, him dying on the cross that we sing about, taking all our sins upon him, and saying, no, Father, I will stand in and I'll be treated as if I had committed their sins so that they can be forgiven by faith alone. That's the kind of love that is required to transform us to begin loving this way. Paul wrote in his second letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14, he says, the love of Christ, in other words, the love of Christ shown to us, controls us or compels us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that we who live might no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. So what's happening in verse one through seven here, the kind of love, we would be amiss if we could just say, well, we'll just kind of reach inside ourselves and muster up enough moral finesse to do this on our own. It can't happen. We love because he first loved us. So we have to receive Christ's love to be transformed and then we're placed on the launch pad and get that lift off to just begin in this, very, this radically transforming and difficult definition of love. And as we do, as we walk in life, look, as, as you live long enough, life gets tiring physically, and sort of spiritually, emotionally. And it it can be hard to keep loving this way in a world like this world. And even as we can ruffle each other's feathers. And so later, in another letter in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews anticipating this says in Hebrews 12.3, consider him, consider Jesus, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So those are kind of two prefaces I want us to keep in mind as, we, as we're going to launch into this passage. Number one, it's, it's the, the gospel, the, the, the love of Christ on the cross that empowers and places us to begin loving this way. But as we can grow weary and feel like, you know what, I just want to get a cabin and move to the woods. And I mean, the way this world is, forget this. We have to keep our eyes on Christ, how he endured I mean, so that we can keep going. Hebrews 12, 3. We stay fresh by keeping our eyes on Christ. So two, two kind of big outline points, if you're taking notes here. Some hooks to hang our thoughts on in verses 1 to 7. Number one, the, the priority of love, which is in verse 1 through 3. We'll see the priority of love in verse 1 through 3. We, we Looked at that in detail last week. That that message is online. You can grab that. Verses one through three, the priority of love. And then in verse four through seven is the practice of love. The priority of love, verse one through three, and and the practice of love, verse four to seven. Just a brief review. Look at verse one. You you see clearly what Paul is, is saying here. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or like banging metal is the idea, just loud, obnoxious, annoying. Verse two, if I have the gift of prophecy, know all mysteries, all knowledge, if I have all faith to remove mountains, but do not have love, I have nothing. And even verse three, and this one's kind of radical, if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, surrender my body to be burned as a martyr he's talking about, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Point being, I can be super skilled, talented, gifted in many different areas of life, have all these accomplishments, certifications, badges, you know, degrees, but it is worth nothing, he says, three times, if it's not accompanied by love. Those are, that's God's divine mathematics, isn't it? that abilities, degrees, accomplishments, you know, wealth, 
achievements, talents, spiritual gifts, my, all that plus, 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 minus love equals zero. It's a warning. Paul is saying there is a priority here, and it is love. We're like a, we're like a banging metal, a banging gong walking around with, with all of our abilities and spiritual gifts and achievements, but don't have love. First John 4.20, John writes, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Charles Spurgeon said this, quote, I'm told that Christians don't love each other. I'm very sorry if that be true, but I rather doubt it. For I suspect that those who do not love each other are not Christians. Now, no man is a Christian who does not love Christians. He who being in the church is yet not of its heart and soul is but an intruder in the family. End quote. Without love, we're nothing. So then the practice of love, number two. Here's where we left off last week. The practice of love. So what does love mean? There's a lot of false definitions, misunderstandings in the world. The practice of love, verse four through seven, and this is, there's a lot happening here. We'll do our best to get through it. Love, the kind of love Paul's talking about here, again, isn't hallmark, quick muster up a feeling and then see ya kind of love. As a preface to verse four to seven, love must be practiced in community. Not to insult anyone's intelligence, but love requires other people, right? The context of the passage is this local church in the city of Corinth. Corinth was like a, an ancient city in Greece. It was, like a mix, it was like a cross between LA and Las Vegas. I mean, it was a colorful town. And people are coming to Christ through all of that, just all of that stuff, and they're fighting and Paul gives these 15 ingredients of love in verse 4 to, four to 7, and he calls them to action. Love requires one another. It's an, it's an interesting thing about the true definition, of, uh, true definition of love that I've noticed. I can seem pretty loving if I don't have to be around other people. Uh, when I'm out skiing, like on a great powder day by myself, and no one's getting in my way, I mean, I feel really loving. I feel like I can be patient with people and no one's getting on my nerves. It's really interesting. It's when I have to be with people uh, and especially people who may be like different than me and have just different life life experiences and stuff like that. That's where love really gets tested. True love is grown and tested in community with one another. Again, Alex Strzok says, quote, the true quality of our love is exposed by the stresses and strains of our relationships with others, especially those with whom we work the closest. Paul Bilheimer says, quote, the local church may be viewed as a spiritual workshop for the development of love. The stresses and strains of a spiritual fellowship offer the ideal situation for the testing and maturing of love. So this is, Intuitive, but sometimes ignored. The, all of the ingredients for love in verse 4 to 7, they're verbs uh, in, in the original language in the, in the first century Greek given here. It's not just a quick feeling I have and a, a, a flighting sort of emotional rise. Oh, it's, I feel loving about the person. They are action words. They're verbs that are first verbs of the thinking and then moving out into life and the strains and stresses of life together. So then, number one, first under this point, the practice of love, love is patient. Verse four, look there. Love is patient. The, the original Greek word into which uh, the New Testament was given, it's made up of two words, and it means a long way from wrath. It means a, a far away from anger is what the word means. Right there, we see that's a test of love, isn't it? And interestingly, this, this word for patient, it's not really found in like ancient secular Greek because they shunned that idea of being a long way from anger with people. And, and, some, of the, and some of the Greek thinking, what, what was noble was just, you just explode if someone steps on your 
big intrusive toes. You just unleash on people and come unraveled and fly off the handle. And Paul's saying, no, no, that's, that's not the way it is. That's, and they thought that was strength. Paul's saying, no, that's not strength. Anybody can come unraveled when you get bugged. True strength is keeping it together and being a long way from wrath, which is patience. And again, in keeping our eyes on Christ here, uh, if you think about the world, that God is the God of the world, uh, statistics say that the earth's population two months ago sur- surpassed 8 billion people. 8 billion, it's, it's doubled since 1975. And say if all 8 billion people in the world uh, on average, in thought, word, and deed, sin five times a day, in other words, fail to perfectly love God or people five times a day, which is a conservative estimate, then God has sinned against 40 billion times per day or 463,000 times a second. And God continues to say, you can use my air. You can, like, your lungs, I gave them to you. You can use them still. 463,000 times a second, you can still use my water. You can still use my dirt. You can still use my sun. Uh, You can still use, like, the legs I gave you and the, the neurons I made for you. And that's patience. It's a long way from wrath that God keeps bearing with us. How long, how many times does someone have to sin against us or step on our toes before we come unglued? Love is patient, beloved. If you're alive and not Jesus, people have had to be patient towards you as we have to be patient towards others. Also, love is kind. Look there in verse four, love is kind. The, the Greek word there translated kind, it, it, it means a serviceable, useful benevolence. Someone who is useful. Not interesting how the Greek word there defines kind. A considerate serviceableness towards others. Not merely anyone can muster up a, a, a a manufactured smile, but under the strains of we're different and people get on each other's nerves, under the strains of that, a compassionate usefulness. Love is kind. Third, look there, look at verse four. Love is not jealous. Love is not jealous. So like a a skilled shepherd and teacher here, the Apostle Paul will now say what love is not in eight different ways. He'll use eight negatives to kind of say, okay, it's this, but it's not this. Love is not jealous. The Greek word for jealous, it means strong desire. And the word was used in original Greek to talk about a warlike spirit or a rivalry, competition, contention. Jealousy is a form of war and rivalry. And even more, jealousy, it's a disturbing resentment or resentful awareness of someone's real or perceived advantage over you. Sometimes it's real, sometimes it's perceived. Shakespeare in Othello, what does he call jealousy? The green-eyed monster. Jealousy is always an indicator of what a person thinks about God, themselves, the cross, and others. It, jealousy, it, it grows out of a heart that, that is devoted to the worst religion in the world. Self-worship. Selfianity. In moments where we're jealous, whether a second or a, a year, we're worshiping ourselves because We think that it's an idolatrous view of self because we're thinking so-and-so, either perceived or real, has this circumstance. I want that. I should have that. So we think we deserve. All things should be unto us. I deserve what they have more than they do. So it's a self-worship. It's radically, jealousy is radically self-centered. And it's a deep unthankfulness to God. Jealousy is a severe ingratitude. 
at saying, yeah, God, you've given me this, you know, you've given me my lungs and a roof over my head and friends and this, but you haven't given me enough, God. It's to slap him in the face and say, you gave that person more than me? How dare you do that? Jealousy is also a deep hatred for the person. We love them that they have some advantage. Jealousy is also satanic. James 3, verse 14 and 15 calls it satanic. You know, listening to old Ozzy Osbourne and eating bad heads, that's not satanic. Jealousy is satanic. Because that, that was the first sin. It was the sin of Satan. He was jealous of God. So he, get, he got chucked out of heaven. James 3, verse 14 says, If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not what comes from above, but it's earthly, natural, demonic. Can we be happy and celebrate with someone when they get something we wanted and we didn't get it and they have some advantage over us? That, that's true freedom. Freed up in the love of Christ. If Christ died for me and I put faith in him, I'm not going to hell. I have, better, I have more than I deserve. An excellent illustration of the love that is not jealous is Jonathan, son of Saul, in 1 Samuel 20. Remember, Saul was the king of Israel. Jonathan, as his biological son, is first in line to take the crown and ascend the throne. That's how it worked in ancient times. But God says, now David's going to get it, and he doesn't. And yet, Jonathan still loves David. David was his best friend. 1 Samuel 20, verse 17 says he loved David as his own life. That's true freedom. Resting in Christ. R.C. Chapman, in his, he wrote an excellent book. Excuse me, Alex Strzok wrote an excellent book about him. He was called the Apostle of Love. Spurgeon called him the saintliest man who ever lived. He said how great victory was that which Jonathan must have gained over himself when he rejoiced to see David raised above him. He had so learned to delight in God that he did not see in David one who was to outshine him, but another faithful man raised up for God. That's true freedom. And so the solution to jealousy is not to get that person out of my life, or to finally get the thing I want, the solution to jealousy is to confess to God that we're, we are radical self-worshippers and that we were worshiping ourselves over God and being unthankful to God, look to Christ afresh and ask his forgiveness and thank him for what he's given us. Love isn't jealous. Also, end of verse four, love does not brag. Love does not brag. This is, I mean, this definition of love is entirely different than the world's. This is the true definition of love. Love does not brag. The Greek word has the idea of self-exalting, self-applause, self-glorying, self-display. I mean, it's, a, it's weird that humans would brag about anything, isn't it? So, like, we're made out of dirt, 2% dirt, 98% water. We, we can't go, in like, a minute without air. We have to lay down unconscious, sleeping for a third of our life. Something we can't even see that small can kill us. No sun and we die. Our offenses against God are so severe that God himself had to come down, become a man, and die on the cross. That's the only way, like a, like a human can be acceptable to God. And given all that, humans brag. That's off. That's misguided. Bragging. Love does not brag. Some braggers boast about their successes. And if they don't have successes in a season of life, they'll, bro they'll boast about their failures. You know, well, I, I, had, I, I had this hard thing happen to me. Well, I, you, that's nothing. You should see what, what hard thing I had happen to me. They've 
they've done something better or suffered something worse. Bragging can be a loud person or they can be quiet. They can quietly brag to themselves or they can brag by showing off something in their life. Bragging is often blind to bragging in self, but not to others. Even a bragger sees bragging in others. And even a bragger loathes bragging in others because it's loathsome. Because we all understand that there's a God much greater than us. That's the immaterial explanation for why every human being, even someone who's not a believer, understands bragging is just nails on the chalkboard. A bragger likes to talk a lot about itself, asks few questions of others, doesn't want to listen to others because it's not interested in others. They worship themselves. End of verse 4, love, furthermore, is not puffed up. Look there, love, your, your translation might say arrogant, proud. The Greek word arrogant, it means puffed up. It means, it, it's, it means love is not puffed up. It means like a inflated with air, like a blowfish or a hot air balloon. A windbag. High-mindedness is the idea, just puffed up around others, just kind of puffed up and bumping into others because you're so full of yourself. Arrogance looks big and mighty, but it's full of air. And, and what's, as the Corinthians are hearing this, they're kind of like, because this is the sixth time he's used this word in the letter to the first Corinthians, which tells you, you know, the situation there. The infighting in the church, underneath it came the spirit of being puffed up. So behind, behind divisions and slander and disputes is you're puffed up, you're arrogant. Arrogance is the opposite of God's favorite virtue, which is humility. Arrogance, for example, can take advice from no one, but humility seeks out advice. Arrogance is upset that someone would confront its sin, but humility is upset at its own sin. Arrogance cannot accept lowly tasks, but humility sees no task as too lowly. Arrogance can't stand when someone addresses its faults, but humility can't stand its own faults. Arrogance confesses everyone else's faults, but humility confesses its own faults. Arrogance will only participate on a team if it can be king. Humility participates to serve. Arrogance keeps a distance from accountability. Humility seeks it out. Arrogance sees little need for others. Humility seeks out others for refinement and input. Arrogance lifts itself up over others. To lower others, humility lowers itself and lifts others up. Love is not arrogant. Verse, verse 5, love, your translation might say, is not rude or does not act unbecomingly. One word in the Greek, it means just to behave dishonorably. Insensitive to the situational circumstances of others. I'd rather just get this comment off my chest than think about what's the context here? Who's around me? insensitive, inconsiderate, vulgar, unobservant at what would bless others. Rudeness seeks to voice its opinions rather than express love. It seeks to, to win an argument rather than to love one another. Oftentimes this shows in people kind of having like a shock factor. I don't care what you think. A teenager disrespects their parents, a wife or a husband disrespect each other, seeking to one-up one another rather than promote unity in the marriage. Love is not rude. Next in the list there, verse 5, love does not seek its own. Does not seek its own. To, to seek its own means you're, you're on a quest looking out for yourself. Uh, attending towards self-favor, self-preference. All things are for me, by me, and unto me, for my glory. 
voicing my preferences before asking others theirs. It's a silly illustration, but I remember a while back, uh, an individual, whenever they would come to somebody's house or some meeting around a dinner table or family room, whatever it might be, it was amazing. They had this radar that you couldn't see where they would always bolt, even if they were like, you know, older people or ladies, they would always find like the most comfortable chair, like the most strategically placed dinner chair or the most comfortable, you know, lazy boy in the room. And it was just, they'd make a beeline. And they had this radar that they would just, like, I mean, like it was, I mean they, they were like, you know, Walter Payton, just elbowing and swerving in and out of people and, and, and finding that comfortable chair. They had this infrared satellite. And I'm like, that, that's, that's a, a small one, but a, a nevertheless, an acute example of someone just seeking their own. Jesus even had a parable about that. Seeking their own, seeking their own in conversation, seeking to voice our opinion, put our view out there, weigh in instead of seeking others' interests, seeking our own in, in serving in ministry. If it, doesn't, if it isn't fine-tuned to exactly how I want to serve, then I'm not helping. Seeking our own at work, you know, bolting and elbowing to, 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 to take the easier task, being unobservant of coworkers and how my performance affects them, not checking in with superiors on how I'm doing, seeking our own. Seeking our own and how we approach church. If it doesn't puff me up, if it doesn't make me comfortable, if, if it's not flattering me, I'm out. But Christ's, his very mission was not to seek his own. I mean, he comes out of heaven. That's not seeking, that's not seeking his own. Leaving the bliss of heaven taking a body, becoming a man, coming into the muck of this world, and then going to the cross to have our sins placed on him. That is emphatically not seeking his own. If anyone deserved to be worshipped and exalted, I mean, it's him. But he says, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to seek my own. I'm going to seek the, the good of everybody else but myself. And he suffers and is crucified on the cross. He's looking out for everybody else at the expense of himself, allowing himself to be trampled. When Jesus did the work of salvation, dying on the cross for our sin, it wasn't like, well, I'll do, you know, 75% and leave 25% to you. Like, I'm going to do it all. Because I'm 100% devoted to not seeking my own. Next, love is not provoked. That's a tough one. Look there in verse 5. Love is not provoked. Oof. The idea of the word there means easily bugged. Easily irritated. Annoyed. Angered. One translation says love is not irritable. It can refer to outward irritability or inward, a quiet person or a loud person, doesn't matter. But I mean, if, if we're going to survive in this world or like in a marriage for more than, you know, a few weeks, you got you to gotta learn to do this one by the grace of God. If you're just going to learn to live with people, this is one that's super important. I mean, you could have a triple PhD in whatever kind of science, but I promise you, in that lab, if you're easily irritated by other people, they don't want you there. They'd rather have the dude that has like a fifth grade education. When we're bugged and irritated, we, we have what's called spiritual Goldilocks syndrome. Do you, do you have spiritual Goldilocks syndrome like I do sometimes? Where it's like, man, that, you know, the Pop-Tart is too hot, the Pop-Tart's too cold, the bed's too soft, the bed's too hard, the chair is too small, the chair is too big. And it's just like everything is irritable. Spiritual Goldilocks syndrome. Those who are irritable often have a sinful amount of preferences and opinions. 
And so it's just, we're irritated because we have like all these buttons. And if someone like comes near you, they accidentally hit one. Or you're pushing my buttons. Well, why do you have buttons? No, why do you have so many buttons? Get rid of them. Throw them away under the cross. The irony of the irritable person is that their irritability is irritating. And consider how Christ was not provoked. I mean, those passing by, Mark 15, 29, Pastor Matt read it, are hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads, saying, ha, you're gonna, you're gonna, if you're the Son of God, come down from there and we'll believe in you. Right, you're the Son of God. Get off the cross and, and, and then we'll think about believing in you. Oh, what irony in that moment. Because if he comes down, nobody goes to heaven. I mean, imagine, he's God. I mean, that's the guy that made the earth and the sun. And they're saying, we'll think about believing on you if you come. He could come down. And he could just wink and just chuck them to Mars. And he is slow to anger. And he is not easily bugged. You talk about a provoking situation as sinners are testing him like that. So strength, again, it, like patience, it's not coming unglued. But it's, it's being not easily bugged. When we're easily bugged, again, it's self-worship. We think that we deserve, you know, everyone should like walk on eggshells around us. And it's just this high view of self where I think nobody should bug me. Well, who, who are we? We're not God. Again, if we've received Christ and put our faith in him, we're not going to hell. I mean, that's something that should quench and squelch the fire of being easily bugged. An irritable Christian is a contradiction in terms. That's like a walking contradiction. Again, Christ died for us. He endured the cross not being easily provoked. And by no work of our own and all the work of his, he hands us heaven by faith in him alone. You know, love is not easily provoked. Next on the list, love does not, finally on verse 5, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Uh, the, the wording there in the original Greek, it was in a, an accounting term in ancient times. So it's saying love is not like this bookkeeper that's keeping track of, you know, all the things that people did and offended me. It's like in modern day terms, it would be saying like, love is not like a Visa credit card machine computer keeping track of every little transaction. You know, you get your bill each month and I mean, they don't forget anything. The $1 transaction and the $1,000, I mean, it's amazing, the memory of these Visa computers. That's kind of, in a modern-day sense, the wording here. Love does not keep track. It does not keep a, is it not a bookkeeper when it comes to these everyday things that might potentially bug us. Love doesn't act like a spiritual bookkeeper who carefully keeps track of the imperfections of others. Love isn't a hurt feelings bookkeeper. Oh, you hurt my hurt. You hurt my my decadent feelings that one time. Man, I mean, look look what Jesus did for us. Who, who are we to be like a a Visa credit card account with each other's imperfections? It's no good. No good. And you know, maybe legitimately, it's something hard or. Or maybe it's something we like imagined or they did that was actually loving to us, but we interpret it as not so much because it, we're revolving around ourselves. It's an amazing sin, really, this one, because love does not take into account a wrong suffered. It, it's, it's amazing because if you struggle like I do at times, you'll fail to remember like certain Bible verses Fail to remember, you know, what was that person's name again? Fail to remember where you put your car keys. 
But when it comes to the way so-and-so said that to me or the way they offended me or stepped on my toes, I mean, we have like a photographic memory. Like we can recount details of it. And if our IQ were to be measured on the way at times we can remember how so-and-so said this to me and as a family, we'd be like, we'd be all be geniuses. 189 IQ. But love is forgetful. 1 Peter 4.8. Love covers a multitude of sins. And if you are a hurt feelings bookkeeper and like a spiritual visa card accounting of every single thing, it's just going to compound misery unnecessarily. We go back to the cross and think, Wait, what does God, is God like that with me? Oh, God knows them all because he's omniscient. But the Bible says he chucked them to the bottom of the ocean. And Jesus came and died for them. Beloved, this world is a place where mishap bookkeeping and hurt feelings tracking, it's like, it's like at an all-time high. It's like a virtue these days, which is weird. And even manufacturing things to have hurt feelings about is like a virtue. This may not be the case and must not be the case with those who profess the name of Christ who died for them. R.C. Chapman again writes, quote, humility is the secret of fellowship and pride the secret of division. Pride nourishes the remembrance of injuries. Humility forgets as well as forgives. Another commentator writes, quote, love is generous in her forgetfulness. Love, verse six, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Look at verse 6. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. What we rejoice in or do not rejoice in says a lot about what our heart worships and cherishes and values. the, The definition of love right now in the world, it's just interesting, isn't it? It's like, you must applaud and affirm Everything I think and do. And if you don't, you're a bigot and you're hateful. Since when is that the definition of love? That's crazy. That makes the individual the center. And it's like we have 8 billion gods running around. That's not going to work well. Right here it says, but love actually, there's like a standard of righteousness and unrighteousness. God makes a standard because he made the universe. If you made your own universe, you can set the standard. Love must draw the line as far as what it affirms and celebrates. It's unloving to celebrate and affirm someone in something that God says, no, that's off limits. You know, with different sexual perversions and deviancies these days, you cannot affirm that and still love the person. But our culture doesn't want to think that because we're so radically self-centered. Matter of fact, you have to not affirm things that God says are wrong in order to love the person. You're hating them if you affirm things that God says are wrong. Uh, Teenagers and middle schoolers here, a word for you. And parents, you can tune out or go to sleep or keep sleeping. Um, Teenagers and middle schoolers, when your parents make a rule in the house, and it's like, you know, there's something you really want, you want to do, you want to have, and they say, look, I'm sorry, we're, you know, we're not really going to allow that. They are not doing that because they hate you, but because they love you and care for you. That's the idea of this verse here. They're doing what this verse says. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. In other words, if a parent is going to love their teen or their middle middle schooler, they must not, that parent must not be okay with things that God says are not okay. Otherwise, they're not loving you. And I know that, you know, sometimes it can seem like, like parents, like we're being a killjoy 
Um, I remember when I was a teen, I wasn't a believer in Christ, and I was dragging my leash all over and didn't understand until later that, no, it was loving of my parents to say we're not going to affirm certain things and therefore make these certain rules. They might not seem loving, but I promise you your parents love you because I see how they talk, to, talk about you when you're not around, and it's loving. Imagine you live in, in uh, South America in a jungle, a family there, and there's a canal that flows on the back of the yard, and there are thousands of piranhas in the canal, and the, and, and the family makes a rule, no swimming in the canal. But imagine the children there are like, I've never seen anything bad in that canal. I, that canal looks fun. It's so hot. I want to go take a dip in the canal. And dad says, trust me, I've been chowed on by piranhas before. It's no fun. Would it be loving if that dad let his kids swim in the piranha-filled canal? Nah. And so it's loving to not allow things that will harm us. In other words, to not rejoice in unrighteousness, but to rejoice in the truth. You are never being loving if you are affirming someone and God says, and something God says is wrong and off limits. We might pretend in this day and age, because people are scared and there's cultural intimidation to not ruffle anyone's feathers in some of these hot button issues, but that doesn't change the fact at all. You are not loving anybody, and I am not either, if I affirm people in something God says is, is no bueno. Love bears all things finally here in verse 7. Four quick things, kind of a staccato fashion. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endureth all, all, all things. Bears all things. The word actually means protect, conceal. The word bear. Uh, it was used in ancient Greek to describe ships that were built like watertight to cover that ship so no water could get in. And it's the idea that love, love wants to cover not in a scandalous way. Like, if there's a crime, we're, we're getting that out there, we're going to deal with it. But in everyday, like, you know, marriage, relational skirmishes, I, I want to cover things. I'm on your side. This is a humble commitment to keep each other's struggles concealed, not prying information. It's like in Genesis 9.22 when Noah, after he lands and he gets drunk and passes out, and one of his sons, Ham, says, ah, look at dad, and, you know, and Shem and Japheth are like, no, man, we got to, they back up and they cover him up. Love covers. Love believes all things. Love believes all things. Next in the list. In other words, it means, this, this is what it means. Love errs on the side of giving someone the benefit of the doubt, believing the best, until I'm absolutely certain that, that some wrong or some sin is true. There are two things which produce this love, knowing I'm not omniscient. I don't know everything. I don't know their motives. And people who think they're like people-wise have to be careful with this one because they can think, oh, I know why they said that. I I can see what's going on here. You're not God. Proverbs 18.13 says, he who answers a matter before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. So this one, I, I remember, okay, I'm not God. I don't know everything. And number two, I, I'm going to, like, because love is good, and I want someone to do this with me, I'm, I'm going to assume that they were charitable, that this, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt until I know factually otherwise. This love avoids speculations. It concludes good until we know. It's not instructing us to be gullible or naive, where it's saying, you know, I refuse to believe anything bad. But it's saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait. I'm not going to jump the gun to catch someone in sin that I'm not 100% sure of yet. And this is essential that we do this. Please believe the best about each other. This is just critical. Critical. You know, well, I saw them blow up and you should have seen the way. Yeah, well, maybe they had no sleep that night. Maybe they just got news that, you know, their uncle died. They, you know, maybe uh, something hard happened at work. And maybe they're just human too. Huh, maybe they're just human also. So love is charitable in its conclusions. Love hopes all things. Second to last year, hopes all things. 
It, it's just, it just means we're hopeful with people and situations. Not naively optim- optimistic, but theologically optimistic. Big difference. Taking in verses like Philippians 1.6, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Yeah, that, that guy might be struggling with that tomorrow, like I struggle with things. But I'm confident that as we love him and we pray and we look at our own imperfections, that God's going to do a work there. And so I'm going to be hopeful towards them. (laughs) If God can save someone like me, surely God could do a work in that guy too. That's the idea. Hopeful. Not throwing in the towel. A trust in God, not people though, right? Trusting in God, not people. And finally, love and the end of verse 7, endures all things. Love endures all things. The, the Greek word there for endure, it means to stand under pressure, to remain under a heavy weight without buckling or bolting. And I think this one is last of the 15 because it's like as we're patient, as we're kind, we're not jealous, not arrogant, not puffed up, you know, believing the best, not provoked, not, not being a hurt feelings bookkeeper and this kind of thing. It's like, as we're walking in all of that supernatural Christ-like love, above all, then what we have to do is, number 15, endure all things. It takes endurance to keep, keep in this game here. The word also meant, uh, referred to a soldier who stood in, despite hostile attacks and didn't retreat. My relationships and your relationships require and will require these 14 things and the 15th, enduring all things. Because Christ, does he not endure with us every single day? And then he endured on that cross people mocking him, saying, come down from there, testing him. I mean, what an endurance that the blessed Savior has demonstrated toward us and for us and continues to each day. The love, taking a breath, being able to enjoy some recreation. Christ sovereign and dishing it all out because he endures And remember, as we have to endure with others, others are always having to endure with us as well, unless you're Jesus. Thomas Watson, great 17th century Puritan, said this, quote, A saint in this life is like gold in the ore. Much dross of infirmity cleaves to him, yet we love him for the grace that is in him. A saint is like a fair face with a scar. We love the beautiful face of holiness, though there's a scar in it. The best emerald has its blemishes, and the best of the saints have their failings. You who cannot love another because of his infirmities, how would you have God love you? And the great news is that not if, but when we fail any one of these 15 things, and love being the chief command, when we fail, there's a love of Christ on the cross, his blood shed to forgive us, to cleanse us, to assure us that we will never be ejected out of his love, not because of how we're performing on a given day, but because how he performed at the cross and he rose from the dead. His love is secure and never failing. Let me close with another Puritan quote from Jeremiah Burroughs. He said this, it's enough that the children of the world wrangle with one another and fight. Let not those that profess God to be their father, oh, let them not in the presence of their father wrangle and fight with one another for certainly the spirit of God cannot bear it. 1 John 4, 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Father in heaven, we have looked at this very challenging definition of love from your word. It's very different than the world's definition, and it's, it's your inerrant, absolute definition. 
forgive me, forgive us, Father, where we need forgiveness, where we have failed this. We thank you for the, the, the death of your beloved son and his resurrection that forgives and washes, takes away the penalty of our sin and his love. Let none of us leave here without putting our faith in Jesus Christ so that we can know your love and get lift off to love one another. Father, give every single one of us in here in this room strength to grow in this 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4 to 7 love this week in our most difficult circumstances. We ask in the name of Jesus, amen.